Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Thursday, August 10th, 2023. Uh, there are a couple of anniversaries. On August 10th, 1270, uh, an Amhara leader named Yakuno Amlak was crowned emperor of Ethiopia under the regal name Tesfa Iasus, having led a rebellion that overthrew the ruling Zagwe dynasty. Uh, he founded, Yakuno Amlak founded the Solomonic dynasty, which was so-called because it claimed descent uh, absent any credible evidence from the biblical Israelite King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. The House of Solomon expanded Ethiopia's borders to and beyond those of the present-day nation and ruled the empire all the way up to the military coup that ousted Emperor Haile Selassie in 1974. So good long run for those guys. Uh, on August 10th, 1920, the Ottoman Empire signed the Treaty of Sevres, formally withdrawing from World War I and surrendering to the Allied powers. The terms which required the empire to give up not only all of its Arab territory, but most of its Anatolian territory as well, were so lopsided that they quickly sparked the Turkish War of Independence. The new Republic of Turkey emerged victorious from that war, repudiated the Treaty of Sevres, and forced uh, the renegotiation in what became known as the 1923 Treaty of Lausanne, which uh, superseded Sevres and made uh, much more favorable terms that wound up creating, of course, uh, or codifying into law the new Turkish nation. Uh, on to the news in the Middle East in Yemen, an attack targeting a convoy of security belt forces troops in Yemen's Abyan province killed at least four people on Thursday. The attack was likely perpetrated by Al-Qaeda, which is active, uh, pretty active in Abyan, though there doesn't seem to be any confirmation of that as yet. The security belt forces is a militia that's affiliated with the secessionist Southern Transitional Council, whose fighters are often targeted by Al-Qaeda. In Iraq, the Turkish military says that six of its personnel and four Kurdistan Workers' Party or PKK fighters were killed in a clash in northern Iraq this week. Uh, PKK media is also reporting that a Turkish drone strike killed one civilian and wounded another in Iraq's Suleymaniye province on Wednesday. In Lebanon, somebody decided to shoot at Lebanese Defense Minister Maurice Slim's car as it was passing through a southern Beirut neighborhood on Thursday. Uh, there were no casualties, but small acts of violence like this seem to be occurring more frequently across Lebanon of late, which in the absence of a functioning government is probably cause for some concern. The fallout from another of those incidents, Wednesday's deadly clash between Hezbollah fighters and residents of the town of Kahala, continued to unfold on Thursday as Lebanese army elements deployed in the town and seized the contents of the Hezbollah truck at the center of the incident. Two people, one resident and one Hezbollah fighter, were killed when the truck crashed and its occupants apparently began shooting at onlookers. Army officials say the truck was carrying ammunition. Uh, the Canadian, UK, and U.S. governments on Thursday all sanctioned former Lebanese Central Bank Governor Riyad Salame, along with two other individuals, on corruption allegations. Salame is under investigation in several European countries for having funneled bank funds into his own investment portfolio. He is also facing charges in Lebanon, but the legal case against him has been frozen amid the overall culture of impunity that applies to senior Lebanese officials. It's likely that his position as bank governor prevented him from being sanctioned prior Prior to this, as blacklisting the head of Lebanon's central bank would have complicated any potential interactions with that institution, Salome is no longer governor of the bank, which doesn't actually have a governor now, uh, much in the same way that Lebanon doesn't really have a government.
In Israel-Palestine, Israeli forces killed a Palestinian militant during an arrest raid near the West Bank city of Nablus on Thursday. The deceased was a member of the Fatah Party's armed wing, Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades. I'm not clear from the reporting whether he was the target of the raid, but Israeli officials are, as ever, insisting that their forces acted in self-defense. In Iran, the Iranian government on Thursday released four detained U.S. nationals from its notorious Evin prison and transferred them to house arrest. They, along with a fifth U.S. national already under house arrest, are part of an apparent agreement between the U.S. and Iranian governments that will see all five leave Iran in return for the release of some $6 billion in Iranian funds currently frozen in South Korean banks by U.S. sanctions, as well as the release of five Iranians in U.S. custody. The deal clearly hasn't been finalized, hence the house arrest, but But if slash when it is finalized, according to The New York Times, the six billion dollars will be placed into a fund administered by the Qatari government that the Iranians will be able to use to purchase food, medicine and other basic necessities. The agreement is the result of lengthy negotiations reportedly mediated by the governments of Oman, Qatar and Switzerland. It is believed these are the only five U.S. nationals currently being held by Iran, particularly now that the U.S. government has adopted the position that FBI slash CIA operative Robert Levinson died in Iranian custody a few years ago. There does not appear to be anything in this deal regarding Iran's nuclear program, an ongoing source of tension that U.S. and Iranian officials have discussed on and off for months. But taking the prisoner issue off the table could help uncomplicate those discussions. Nor does there appear to be anything here addressing tensions around Iranian naval activities in the Persian Gulf region, an issue that has prompted a new U.S. military influx to the region. Uh, It's conceivable, though unlikely, uh, that they have reached some sort of, uh, let's say, unstated understanding around these other issues uh, that isn't being made public. Moving on to Asia and India, where Prime Minister Narendra Modi easily survived a parliamentary no-confidence vote on Thursday. Opposition parties brought the motion over the Modi government's response, or rather lack of response, to recent intercommunal violence in India's Manipur state, but the outcome was never really even close to being in doubt. Indeed, opposition legislators walked out of parliament about 100 minutes into Modi's marathon 130-minute speech against the motion, at which point the vote itself became almost meaningless. Another outbreak of intercommunal violence, this time in India's Haryana state, has displaced some 3,000 people, most of them or all of them perhaps Muslim residents of low-income neighborhoods, over the past couple of weeks. The violence apparently began when a group of Muslims attacked a Hindu religious procession on July 31st and has escalated from there. Most of the subsequent violence has involved Hindus attacking Muslims. At least seven people have been killed. In China, the Chinese foreign ministry on Thursday lambasted the executive order Joe Biden signed the previous day, barring investment in certain parts of the Chinese tech sector. In a statement, the ministry accused the U.S. government of practicing, quote, technological hegemony, end quote, and trying, quote, to deprive China of its development rights, end quote. There's no indication Beijing is preparing to retaliate, although that could change, of course. The Biden administration continues to insist that it does not intend to damage the Chinese economy or even decouple from it. But with every new layer of sanctions, it gets more difficult to maintain that claim. U.S. sanctions have reached the point where, according to Reuters, they are discouraging overall investment in the Chinese economy for fear of companies inadvertently running afoul of some U.S. penalty or another, or of exposing themselves to future sanctions. In North Korea, North Korean media reported on Thursday that Kim Jong-un has canned his top military commander, 
Park Su-il, replacing him with former defense minister Ri Yong-gil. Uh, the rationale behind the change is unclear, but Kim has been stressing in party forums of late that the North Korean military needs to get bigger and more advanced post-haste in case of war. There is no indication that we're ramping up toward a war on the Korean peninsula, but if, if as is widely believed, Pyongyang has been supplying Russia with military hardware, then Kim may feel some pressure to repair, replenish stocks, uh, and perhaps uh, Pak was simply not getting the job done. On to Africa and Mali, the coordination of Azawad movements, the umbrella group for a coalition of mostly Tuareg former rebels in northern Mali, announced on Thursday that it has pulled its representatives out of Bamako. The CMA and Mali's ruling junta have seen their relationship steadily erode with the CMA, arguing that the junta has stopped implementing the terms of the peace deal that ended the 2012 northern Mali uprising. Most recently, it's accused the Malian military of seizing control of military bases in northern Mali that have been vacated by United Nations peacekeepers, which it considers to be a violation of the agreement. In Niger, Economic Community of West African States members held their planned emergency summit on Thursday to discuss what is to be done about the coup in Niger. They decided to move a step closer to their threatened military intervention by activating the bloc's standby military force. Activating is a somewhat... Uh, let's say, optimistic term here. It will take potentially weeks to assemble that force, which, as far as I know, only exists in the most theoretical of senses at this point, uh, and to prepare that force then to invade Niger. So we're definitely not at the point of no return as far as an intervention. This is rather an attempt to make a show of force that could prompt the Nigerian junta to negotiate. I doubt it will work, but I guess anything is possible. The junta has reportedly threatened to kill ousted Nigerian President Mohamed Bazoum in the event of an invasion, which was an easy threat to see coming, but makes it clear that junta leaders aren't ready to capitulate. And another sign that they're not planning to go anywhere, junta leaders appointed a new civilian-ish cabinet on Thursday, making a statement that was intended to coincide with the ECOWAS meeting. In Nigeria, gunmen attacked a village in uh, Nigeria's Plateau State on Thursday, killing at least 20 people. Local residents attributed the attack to Fulani herders who have been engaged in tit-for-tat violence with farmers in Plateau for several months now. On to Europe and Russia. Uh, Russian plutocrat Arkady Voloz, or Arkady Voloz, uh, the co-founder of Yanex, which is more or less Russia's Google, publicly criticized the Russian invasion of Ukraine on Thursday. Voloz, who lives in Israel and thus can say things like this without fear of, say, falling out a window a week later, is a bit late to the party, but he is just the second prominent Russian tycoon to speak negatively about the war for public consumption. There's been some speculation that the Russian government could nationalize Yanex, although uh, they may be holding off for fear of driving its staff out of Russia and contributing to the brain drain that the war and Western sanctions have caused. In Ukraine, the Washington Post reports that the minimal progress Ukraine's counteroffensive has made thus far is taking a toll on the national mood. And I'll read you a couple of paragraphs here. Uh, for nearly 18 months, Ukraine has stood against its Russian invaders, rallying support for its troops by embracing last year's battlefield victories in the Kyiv, Kharkiv, and Kherson regions. Those wins carried beleaguered Ukrainians through a winter of airstrikes on civilian infrastructure and a brutal and symbolic battle for Bakhmut, the eastern city that fell to the Russians in May. 
Throughout, Ukrainian officials and their Western partners hyped up a coming counteroffensive, one that buoyed by a flood of new weapons and training they hoped would turn the tide of the war. But two months after Ukraine went on the attack with little visible progress on the front and a relentless bloody summer across the country, the narrative of unity and endless perseverance has begun to fray. Uh, and I'll just leave it there. You can uh, read the rest if you uh, click the link. Elsewhere in Ukraine, a Russian missile strike on Thursday hit a hotel in the city of Zaporizhia that is apparently used by U.N. personnel, killing at least one person and wounding another 16. Russian officials, meanwhile, say their forces downed 13 Ukrainian drones, two bound for Moscow and the rest for Sevastopol. The Ukrainian military says it is opening up commercial shipping quarters through the Black Sea to and from three ports near Odessa, though it cannot guarantee the safety of any vessels using them. It seems unlikely that any ships will enter the Black Sea under those conditions, but ship captains whose vessels have been stuck in Ukrainian ports since the collapse of the Black Sea Grain Initiative might decide to take their chances getting out of the war zone. And the Biden administration has asked Congress to authorize $40 billion in additional spending, including $24 billion that would be earmarked for Ukraine, $13.1 billion of which would go uh, uh, to the military support. Republicans may push back a bit, but it seems unlikely that they would derail this request uh, entirely, but we will see. In the Americas, in Ecuador, the assassination of presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio after his campaign rally in Quito on Wednesday evening was, needless to say, a shocking event. Much is still unknown about what exactly happened, but authorities say that one of the attackers was killed in a shootout with police following the incident. That person and another six people arrested in connection with the assassination are apparently all Colombian nationals with known ties to organized crime. Via Vicencio was running on an anti-corruption, anti-crime message alleging ties between Ecuadorian government officials and criminal gangs, so there is a potential motive uh, there. Despite the assassination, President Guillermo Lasso said on Thursday that the election will still take place on August 20th as scheduled. That's the first round, of course. There will likely, uh, polling suggests there will likely be a runoff, but we'll see. Uh, and finally, in the United States, William Astor at Tom Dispatch considers the U.S. military's self-proclaimed status as the greatest military in history. Uh, I'll read you a couple of paragraphs from his piece. In retrospect, the answer is all too straightforward. We need something to boast about, don't we? In the once upon a time exceptional nation, what else is there to praise to the skies or consider our pride and joy these days except our heroes? After all, this country can no longer boast of having anything like the world's best educational outcomes or healthcare system or the most advanced and safest infrastructure or the best democratic politics. So we better damn well be able to boast about having the greatest fighting force ever. Leaving that boast aside, Americans could certainly brag about one thing this country has beyond compare, the most expensive military around and possibly ever. No country even comes close to our commitment of funds to wars, weapons, including nuclear ones at the Department of Energy, and global dominance. Indeed, the Pentagon's budget for defense in 2023 exceeds that of the next 10 countries, most of them allies, combined. And from all of this, it seems to me two questions arise. Are we truly getting what we pay so dearly for, the bestest, finest, most exceptional military ever? And even if we are, should a self-proclaimed democracy really want such a thing? The answer to both of these questions is, of course, no. After all, America hasn't won a war in a convincing fashion since 1945. If this country keeps losing wars routinely and often enough catastrophically, as it has in places like Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, how can we honestly say that we possess the world's greatest fighting force? 
And if we nevertheless persist in such a boast, doesn't that echo the rhetoric of military empires of the past? Uh, anyway, this is me again. Astor concludes that the U.S. military is truly exceptional at two things, spending money, as he already said, and fighting perpetual wars without inconveniencing the U.S. public, uh, which sounds about right to me. Uh, on that note, that's it for us tonight. Thank you uh, for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And thanks to all of you uh, who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially paid foreign exchanges subscribers who make this newsletter possible. Uh, please, if you are not a paid foreign exchanges subscriber, please consider uh, supporting the newsletter. I can neither confirm nor deny uh, that there may be a special offer in the uh, in the offing uh, right now if you subscribe today uh, or in the next few weeks, let's say. Uh, but uh, really, the newsletter, um, we need your support. I need your support to keep doing this. So, so please... Uh, if you're not, if you haven't made that jump, please consider it. And if you have, uh, please tell your friends and, and try to get more eyeballs around here. That's always a good thing. Uh, with that, until next time, take care and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.